Romans chapter number four, and let's look at verse number one. The Bible says, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And this morning, I want to preach on the subject, the justification illustrated. Justification illustrated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Brother Scott, do you mind praying this morning? Amen. You may be seated. So because we've uh, taken a little bit of a break, I kind of want to bring you um, back into the context of what we'll be talking about. Uh, We started in the book of of Romans in chapter number one. This letter is a letter written by Paul to the church at Rome. Now, this church here is a, a mix of Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And the Jewish believers are having a hard time accepting the fact that the Gentiles are declared righteous, that they have been justified um, because they have not uh, partaken in the outward work of circumcision. So they have this, this um, very, very, um, just uh, this, this concept that they are not accepting them. But Paul says very clearly in Romans chapter one, verse number 16, that the gospel is the power unto salvation to everyone who believeth. Amen. The Jews and the Gentiles Um, and everyone who believes the gospel is what's the power of salvation. Then he gets into really just um, the depravity of man. And and from the uh, really the end of chapter number one, all through the middle of chapter number three, he talks about the unrighteousness of mankind that no one seeks after God. Right. That that we are just wicked and in our sin. And he, he goes on to talk about that. But toward the end of chapter number three, Paul concludes uh, chapter number three in verse number 28. Look at it. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And so he concludes that mankind, Gentile or Jew, is justified before God only by faith, right? Not the deeds of the law. And Paul, because he states this, he anticipates these Jewish believers to buck at that conclusion, right? He anticipates them not liking the conclusion that he has drawn. And therefore, Paul gives the example of what Scripture says about two legends, if you will, Abraham and David, and and how uh, their righteous standing before God, how it came about. I mean, Abraham was the father of many nations, right? They knew who he was. Uh, David was probably the greatest Israelite king. And so Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, makes really a genius move when writing chapter number four. Chapters one through three, Paul has been opposing the nationalistic, the works righteousness Jews, right? 
He's been opposing them. And so who would both the father of many nations and the model king of Israel agree with? And that's really the question of chapter number four. And Paul shows us that when it comes to justification, there is nothing to boast about. Amen? There's nothing for us to boast about when it comes to our justification. And he says in verse number one, look at it again. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So the first possibility in Paul's argument is that Abraham was justified by works. He says that here in verse number two. If Abraham was justified by works. That, it, that Abraham shows us that saving faith equals obedience. And if this were the case, Paul continues that the conclusion, the logical conclusion, is that Abraham had something to boast about. If it was because of his works, then Abraham would have something to boast about. Are you with me? Right? But he says in verse number two, he hath whereof to glory. So if saving faith equals obedience then we who are saved would be able to boast before God and before others if it was based on our obedience. Because we would be the reason for justification in our lives, being declared righteous before God. But at this point, Paul says, hold on, right? Hold on to that conclusion. Just wait a minute, because even Abraham could not boast before God. Look at verse number two. He says at the end, he, he would have to glory, but not before God. He says he can't boast before God. And so what Paul is doing is he's painting a picture of Abraham standing before God and boasting about what he did, telling God all of the good things that he had done and, and how he obeyed. And Paul is saying, hey, it doesn't work that way. Justification doesn't work that way. We have nothing to boast in before God. Paul says in this argument that scripture proves that in fact, Abraham had something to, had, had nothing to boast about. Look at verse number, number three. For what saith the scripture, right? He says, okay, let's look at what the scripture says. This is what you think. Let's look at the scripture. Abraham believed God and it, what? His belief was counted unto him for righteousness, you see, this verse introduces us to an extremely important word all throughout chapter number four. And we'll, we'll look at, you'll see this as we go through the weeks in chapter number four. It's a very important uh, Greek word and it's logos domai and it's used several times throughout the whole chapter. And it's translated in different words in chapter number four. It's translated as counted in verses three and five. It's translated as reckoned in verse number four. And it's translated as imputeth or imputed in verses six and eight. But that's all the same word. It's all the same Greek word. It's translated in those, those different words. And this is an accounting term. It's an accounting term. It means to credit or count as. You see, to credit something is to confer a status that was not there before. To credit something is to confer a status that was not there before. Okay, that's, that's the whole meaning of that word. And in verse number three, 
Uh, Paul, quoting from Genesis 15, 6, which let me read that. Genesis 15, 6 says this, and he believed, who's he speaking of? Abraham, right? And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And so what Genesis 15, verse number six says is that Abraham's faith was counted unto him for righteousness. And so what does that mean? What does that statement mean? It's not merely that faith results in righteousness. Okay, that's not not what he's saying here. It is true that if we believe that God exists, right, and we believe that he deserves our obedience and he deserves our worship, then out of that will flow righteous living. Amen, would you agree with me on that? Out of that truth would flow righteous living as, as a Christian, as a believer. But that's not what he's talking about here. And it's understand here, it isn't that Abraham's faith was in itself a form of righteousness. It's not that Abraham's faith was deserving of God's favor and his blessing. No, none of us are deserving of his grace, right? It's not that his faith was deserving of it. No, it's something so much more. It is faith counted for righteousness means that God treated Abraham as though he was living a righteous life. His faith was not righteousness, but God counted it as if it were. Isn't that amazing? His faith was not righteousness because he is ungodly, but God counted it as if it were righteousness. Douglas Moo writes this. He says, if we compare other verses in which the same grammatical construction is used as in Genesis 15, 6, we arrive at the conclusion that the crediting of Abraham's faith as righteousness means to account him a righteousness that does not belong to him. That does not belong to him. So Abraham was not in himself righteous. He was not perfect. He was not blameless. He was a sinner just like us. But God treated him as though he were righteous because of his faith. It is possible to be loved and to be accepted by God while we ourselves are sinful and imperfect. That's a a wonderful truth. Martin Luther put it this way. He said that Christians are at the same time both righteous and sinful. Christians are both righteous and sinful. And if there's anyone in here today that says you are not a sinner, then you're a sinner. (laughs) The proof of the interpretation of this truth can be seen in Romans 4 and verse number 5. In the incredible statement that God is a God who justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. Look at verse number 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the righteous. Is that what you see? Help me out. Is that what you see in the Bible? No, the ungodly. He justifieth the ungodly. And so we find here that the truth is that when you receive your credited righteousness, you are still ungodly. The Bible doesn't say that he justifies the righteous. He justifies the ungodly. He justifies the sinner. Justification and the credit and credited righteousness are the same thing. You see, to be justified is to receive credited righteousness. 
Martin Luther called this passive righteousness. It's what theologians call imputed righteousness. You've heard that term before, imputed righteousness. And look what Paul explains in verse number four. He says, now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. What's he saying here? He's saying that our righteousness is an either or, right? Either our righteousness is merited by our works or it's credited without them. And when someone is given money, it's either as a result of work, right? Wages, or it has nothing to do with your work, a gift, right? It's either a payment or it's a a gift, a debt or a gift, Wages are not credited, right? Wages are not given freely. Why? Because you worked for it. You're indebted to your wages, to your payment, right? But understand that if salvation is not a gift, then God is indebted to save us, just as your employer is indeed indebted to pay you. And that, of course, goes against the entire Bible, right? Our salvation is given freely, our justification is given freely. In Genesis 15, 6, it was given to Abraham freely as a gift. And understand what Paul is trying to show these Jews is that our justification, in our justification, we have nothing to boast of. Amen? You don't have anything to boast of. You can't say, look what I've done. No, it's only look what Jesus has done. And Paul's making it very clear that this this thing of justification that he's talking about is we we cannot boast in. So what is saving faith? In contrast to what Paul has already argued, that faith does not equal obedience, right? Paul gives us the, the formula that saving faith equals trust in God's saving provision. Saving faith is trusting in God's saving provision. You see, in Romans 4, verse number 5, we are told that saving faith consists of the ending of one kind of trust and the beginning of another kind of trust. Right? First, we find that a saved person does not work to be saved. All right, I'm glad you're with me this morning. A saved person does not work to be saved. Look at verse number 5, the very beginning of it. But to him that worketh not. To him that worketh not. This does not mean that a saved person disregards works or a saved person disregards the law. Because Paul said in in chapter three and verse number 31, look what he said. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish it. Therefore, what he is saying here in verse number five is that it means that the saved person no longer trusts in obedience as a way to be saved. That a Christian is one who stops working to be saved, not one who stops working, right? Because faith without works is dead. But secondly, a saved person is saved because he trusted God, the one who justifieth the ungodly. You see, this means a Christian is one who trusts that God has a way to save us apart from our works, apart from our efforts. And that way is Jesus and the good news of the gospel. 
And Paul said in one, chapter one and verse number 16, again, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Tim Keller calls saving faith a trust transfer. I love that. He calls saving faith a trust transfer. It is the removing of one's hopes and trust from other things to be saved and to place them on Jesus as savior. It is the ending of one kind of trust and the beginning of another kind of trust. You see, verse number five concludes by saying that if we stop trusting in ourselves as justifiers and we start trusting God as justifier, then the result is what? Credited righteousness. It's justification. Even today, many Jewish commentators find Paul's definition of faith hard to understand. As I was studying, one of the <coughs> Jewish commentators, Hans Joachim Scopes, writes this, faith becomes a zealous obedience in the matter of fulfilling the law. Paul's position of absolute opposition between faith on the one hand and the law on the other has always been unintelligible to the Jewish thinker. They still struggle with it. They still struggle with that truth that Paul is trying to get out. But Paul says that justification has always been by faith. All the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse number six. Justification has always been by faith. You see, Abraham trusted God. And that, because of his belief in God, it counted unto him as righteousness. You see, Abraham wasn't saved by simply believing in God. Verse number three reminds us that Abraham believed God, but he's also the man of verse number five, who believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly. And so saving faith is not believing that God is there, right? There's a lot of people that believe that, that God is there, Saving faith is believing God when he promises a way of salvation by grace. You see, you can have a lot of strong faith that God exists, right? You can even, you can even think that he deserves your obedience and that he's holy and that he is loving. You can even believe that the Bible is God's holy word. You can show great reverence for God and all the while you can be seeking to be your own savior and your own justifier by trusting in your own performance. In religion, in moralism, right? In parenting, in fill in the blank, your own, your own performance. And so to say saving faith is a trust transfer is to see where your trust is. It's to remove your hopes and your trust from those things and to place them on God as savior. For example, if I were to ask you, if you were to die today, God forbid, but if you were to die today and you stand before God and he looked at you and he asked the question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? If the answer is number one, because I have tried my best to be a good Christian, then you are giving a salvation by works answer. If your answer is number two, because I believe in God and I try to do his will, then you are giving a salvation by faith plus works answer. 
If your answer is number three, because I believe in God with all my heart, then you are giving a salvation by faith as a work answer. And in each answer, the person is religious, but is not someone who worketh not to be justified. You understand what I'm saying? As verse number five, but to him that worketh not. That is the individual who is saved, who stops trying to work. And these answers, all of these answers, all three of them, miss the wonderful gospel. And what is the wonderful gospel? That Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Right? the, The gospel is that when he cried, it is finished, that is exactly what he meant. You have to make a complete trust transfer off of yourself and your performance and your ability and in place it on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What saving faith is makes all the difference in the world. You see, if faith equals obedience, you're placing your faith in yourself and in your own abilities. And you know what that leads to? That leads to boasting. That leads to pride. That leads to disappointment when you fail. But if faith equals trust in God's promises to save, the gospel, then you are placing your faith in God and in his ability to justify. And you know what that does? That brings about humility. That brings confidence. That brings about uh, what we find here. We'll, We'll later see what Abraham discovered. And so listen, saving faith is not trusting in Jesus plus. Saving faith is completely transferring your trust on Jesus, period. And I hope you agree with me this morning. Paul continues with the example of David's righteous standing before God. So not only does Paul say, okay, listen, you don't agree. He anticipates this this drawn conclusion that he draws in the end of chapter number three. He anticipates the Jews to, uh, to buck at it, right? To go against it. And so he says, hey, well, let me tell you about Abraham. But then he says, let me also tell you about David, the greatest Israelite king. And in verses six through eight, Paul essentially says, David, you know what? He says the same thing. Look at verse number six. The Bible says, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Amen. He imputeth righteousness without works. You see, David had many reasons to boast in himself, don't you think? He's a mighty warrior, right? Solomon has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, right? He was, he was a mighty warrior. He had a lot to boast in. He was a king. He had grown his nation's borders. He brought peace to the nation of Israel. He established Jerusalem as his capital. He did all of those things. Yet David had many reasons to be crushed by his sinfulness. He was an adulterer. Through conspiracy, conspiracy, he became a murderer. And this strong, sinful man, he says he describes the blessedness of the man as being one whom God imputeth righteousness without works. 
He goes on to say, and verses seven and eight, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And what Paul is doing here is he's quoting Psalm chapter 32, verses one and two. The Bible says this, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Notice that David does not say, blessed are those who do not sin. David doesn't say, those who through obedience avoid sin. He acknowledges that he is a sinner, doesn't he? And yet he knows that he is still blessed. Why? Because the Lord will never count. He will never impute his sin against him. That's incredible, church. He knew that even though he was a sinner, that God, because of his faith in God, because of his belief in God, that the Lord would never count his sin against him. You see, it's very important to know this because being in a state of credited righteousness means that your sin is not counted against you. Though you still sin, though there is consequences for your sin, it cannot condemn you, amen? It does not affect your status before God. Why? Because he sees you as his son. And knowing the blessing of credited righteousness is the only way to be free to view yourself truly. Why? Because without it, we will either ignore the truth that God is righteous and that he will only accept the righteous life. That's no way to live or we will be crushed by that truth. We will ignore or we will excuse our sin. And Paul says, God forbid that we do that. But if we have a saving faith, we can be real about ourselves. We can be real about our flaws, about our failings, about our sin. And you know what? We can then pick ourselves up. We can pick each other up when we fail. Why? Because we know that the blessing of being sinners whose sins are not counted against us. Sinners who are righteous because of Jesus. Let me say today that this righteousness is still available to you. This righteousness that Paul speaks of is still available to you this morning. And God is ready to impute or credit the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, onto your account. You just have to make a trust transfer, right? Stop trusting in, this, in these things and place your trust in Christ. Because you have to stop trusting in yourself and place your trust in Jesus to be your savior from sin. And so let me ask you this morning, if you were to die today, God forbid, and you stood before God and he asked you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Would it be an answer that has to do with something that you could boast in? Or is it an answer of grace? Also, after looking at these verses, how would you define saving faith? Would it be obedience or a trust transfer? 
I love how Pastor Josh explained faith a couple weeks ago. He said, faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. It's understanding. It's agreement that your understanding is true. And then it is resting on that truth. Resting on an object. That's faith. You see, we have, we have to come to a point in our lives where we not only believe in a God, but we trust in God who justifieth the ungodly. To credit our account with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have to stop trusting in ourselves to be saved and solely trust in Jesus and his righteousness to save us. Paul's making it very clear to these Jewish believers. He says, listen, you have nothing that you can boast in. Not the outward works that you Jews do, nothing. Because your justification is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all sin. Let me say today, church, let's be thankful for what we've heard this morning. That there's nothing that we can boast in when it comes to our justification, right? Because we are only justified by our faith and the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That is what saving faith is. It's a trust transfer, removing all the trust on yourself and your own ability and your own performance and placing all of your trust on Jesus and the wonderful gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's take what we've heard today and be encouraged by that. Knowing that, hey, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. And no matter if we do sin, because we're going to sin, we're going to mess up. Don't beat yourself up about it. Get back up because God sees you as righteous and start living for him. Because of what Jesus has done for you.